Well, good morning, church. We want to remind you once again to uh, make sure you come to the concert and bring an unbelieving friend. What an incredible opportunity we have to worship the Lord and to invite others uh, to become worshipers, those who will worship in spirit and truth to introduce those who don't know the Lord to him. Uh, the Christmas concert's an incredible opportunity for that, so be in prayer for it and uh, be thinking whom the Lord may have you invite. Well, I want to invite you to open to Isaiah chapter 1. And a couple of weeks ago, we began our study of the book of Isaiah by giving a really broad overview of the book of a whole. And today we're going to be looking at Isaiah's introduction to his book in chapter 1. And we'll be spending two weeks in chapter 1 because it is the introduction to the whole book. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The vision of Isaiah the son of Amos concerning Judah and Jerusalem which he saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. And so this is the introduction to the book, and chapter 1 really becomes a thematic introduction to the rest of the book. I want you to notice there in verse 1 that the book of Isaiah contains the visions which the Lord showed to Isaiah. In fact, Isaiah says that these are the visions which he saw during the reigns of the, these four kings of Judah. Well, the word saw there is important because they indicate that the revelations that God gave to Isaiah were not delivered merely orally, they were also delivered visually. So for example, in Isaiah chapter six, the Lord gives Isaiah the vision of his throne room and Isaiah describes what he sees there. And so, his visions were intensely visual and experiential. He didn't just hear these things, he saw them, the visions which he saw. So as we begin our study of Isaiah 1, uh, verses 2 through 31, and we'll cover verses 2 through about 15 this morning, we need to remember that what we're reading is a written account of what Isaiah saw, heard, and experienced. And so I want to help you to visualize the vision, to visualize the vision. And to do so, I'm going to invite you to step into the cosmic courtroom, the supreme court of all the universe, because that is the scene described in verses 2 through 4. Look at Isaiah chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manger. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from him. <clears throat> the first passage of Isaiah begins with Isaiah recounting a speech which the Lord makes. And in this speech, the Lord calls the heavens and the earth to be witnesses, witnesses of an epic showdown an epic showdown which occurs in the supreme court of the universe between God and Israel. 
Well, why is this epic showdown in the Supreme Court of the universe happening? Well, to get the context, we need to go back to the covenant that God made with Israel at Mount Sinai. And when he made that covenant with them at Mount Sinai, the heavens and the earth were called to be witnesses of the formation of the covenant. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 4. In Deuteronomy, Moses is giving a, a summation of the Mosaic covenant and of the law of God given to them. And in Deuteronomy chapter 4 and then in chapter 30, chapter 31 and, and chapter 32, in multiple places it is said that the heavens and the earth were the witnesses of the formation of this covenant. So look first at Deuteronomy chapter 4 beginning in verse 25. When you become the father of children and children's children and have remained long in the land and act corruptly and make an idol in the form of anything and do that which is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke him to anger I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will surely perish quickly from the land where you are going over the Jordan to possess it you shall not live long on it but will be utterly destroyed the Lord will scatter you among the peoples and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord drives you. And then look at down to verse 36 of the same chapter. Out of the heavens he let you hear his voice to discipline you. And on earth he let you see his great fire and you heard his words from the midst of the fire because he loved your fathers. Therefore he chose their descendants after them and he personally brought you from Egypt by his great power. So the heavens and the earth are the witnesses and they heard the Lord's voice from heaven and on earth they saw the pillar of fire that guided them out of Egypt. And so the heavens and the earth are witnesses of covenant formation. Then flip over to Deuteronomy chapter 30 verses 19 through 20. In Deuteronomy 13, 19, we read, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants, by loving the Lord your God, by obeying his voice, and by holding fast to him. For this is your life and the length of your days, that you may live in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give to them. And then flip over to chapter 31, verses 28 through 29. <clears throat> Assemble to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers, that I may speak these words in their hearing, and call the heavens and the earth to witness against them. For I know that after my death you will act corruptly and turn from the way which I have commanded you, and evil will befall you in the latter days, for you will do that which is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger with the work of your hands. And then look at the Song of Moses in chapter 32, verse 1. Give ear, O heavens, and let me speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. Let my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, as the droplets on the fresh grass, and as the showers on the herb. 
For I proclaim the name of the Lord. Ascribe greatness to our God. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. They have acted corruptly toward him. They are not his children because of their defect, but are a perverse and crooked generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is not he your father who has bought you? He has made you and established you. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of all generations. Ask your father and he will inform you, your elders, and they will tell you. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of man, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the allotment of his inheritance. He found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of a wilderness, he encircled him. He cared for him. He guarded him as the pupil of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that hovers over its young, he spread his wings and caught them. He carried them on his pinions. The Lord alone guided him. At the covenant formation, the heavens and the earth were called to witness this sacred covenant. You know, I've been a groomsman in a couple weddings, and what I realize is that, you know, the role of, a, of the groomsman and the bridesmaid is not just to stand up there and look pretty. It is to be the witnesses of the formation of a sacred covenant before God. So I've told some of my friends, I tell them on, you know, told them on their wedding date, I'm here not just to look pretty, but to be a witness of your covenant. And if you ever break this covenant, you will hear from me. I'll hold you accountable to this because I was the witness of a sacred covenant made before God. Therefore, I have a responsibility if you were ever to be unfaithful to that covenant to come and exhort you and to be a witness of the covenant. This is what the heavens and the earth are being called to do. They were the witnesses of the formation of the covenant. Now they're being called as witnesses to a violation of the covenant. A crime has been committed of epic proportions. And so God calls the entire cosmos, the heavens and the earth, to be witnesses of the court proceedings which are now commencing. Now, you may say, well, how can the heavens and the earth be witnesses? In what sense can they be witnesses? Well, the phrase the heavens and the earth in the Old Testament refers to all of the conscious beings in the universe. That's the angelic hosts. That's the souls of all the redeemed in heaven. And that is every generation which lives on the earth. All who live in the heavens and the earth are called to be witnesses of this violation of the covenant. By the way, remember when Jesus was coming in his triumphal entry into Jerusalem and you know, the Pharisees are like, tell your disciples to, you know, be quiet and stop praising you. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, if they keep quiet, even the rocks will cry out. So 
The phrase, the heavens and the earth being witnesses, first of all, refers to the angelic host, the souls of the redeemed in heaven, as well as every generation on the earth. But if necessary, God will animate the physical universe to bear witness. The rocks themselves will cry out if need be. Arnold G. Fruchtenbaum, an ethnically Jewish Christian scholar, writes, quote, In the first segment of his book, Isaiah brings his audience into a courtroom. On trial is Israel. God is both the plaintiff and the judge. The heavens and the earth are the witnesses, and the court proceedings are as follows. Number one, God brings the charge, verses two through nine. Secondly, God answers Israel's potential defense with a rebuttal, verses 10 through 17. Number three, God offers to Israel mercy and grace in verses 18 through 20. Fourth, the offer is rejected by Israel in verses 21 through 23. And then God concludes with his sentence of judgment in verses 24 through 31. These are the court proceedings. But to Dr. Fruchtenbaum's list, I want to add a vital sixth aspect, which is that God promises Israel future restoration in verses 26 through 27. And so this is the scene in the supreme court of the universe. And we are being called upon to observe these court proceedings. A covenant has been made, a covenant has been violated, and now the judge is holding court. Now before we go further and kind of walk through the proceedings of this case, I want to pause and just kind of help you observe a few things about the overall structure of Isaiah chapter 1. As I look at the structure and just the, all the different aspects of the grammar and, and, and how it's, uh, it's divided up and how it's connected, my observation is that this is beautiful writing. In fact, it's so majestic that I can't imagine that it could be written by a human hand alone. So I want to just kind of point out a few things. They'll help you not only to understand the content, but understand the structure of what's happening and then make some key connections. So the first observation I want to make about chapter one is that, as Gary Smith points out, there are 19 linguistic parallels between chapter one of Isaiah and the conclusion in chapters 65 through 66. 19 very clear linguistic parallels. What what do those linguistic parallels tell us? Well, first of all, this is clear evidence that the same hand wrote the whole book. You see, the liberals, they don't want to believe that God revealed to Isaiah the future, including the very specific prophecy about Cyrus and what he would do and the messianic prophecies. They don't want to believe that Isaiah revealed the future because That would have obvious implications for their whole lives. And so they want to say, well, you know, there was proto-Isaiah, and then there was this other guy who wrote, and then later on in the centuries, after Cyrus, someone wrote that part about Cyrus, and then after Jesus, someone added to that. And of course, that final thought is absolutely, uh, absolutely refuted by the Dead Sea Scrolls, which predate the time of Christ. But even here, internal to the book, these 19 linguistic parallels between chapter 1 and Chapter 65 through 66 are strong evidence that the same hand wrote the whole book. But it also tells us something. It tells us that chapter one 
is the introduction to the whole book. It's the theme of what chapters 2 through 64 are going to talk about and then what the conclusion in 65 through 66 is going to return to. And that's why in the uh, overview I gave a couple weeks ago, I cited Dr. Paul Benoit, who points out that the four major theological themes of the book of Isaiah are all present here in chapter 1. One of the major themes in Isaiah is the indictment of sin, and we see that in verses, chapter 1, verses 2 through 15. There's an invitation to repent throughout the book of Isaiah. That, we see that in verses 16 through 20. We see warnings of coming judgment throughout the book. We see that in chapter 1, verses 24 through 25. And then we see the promise of coming messianic glory. And we see that in chapter 1, verses 26 through 27. And so chapter 1 really lays out the themes and is kind of the overview of the entire book. And that's why I'm spending both this week and next on chapter 1, and then we'll start studying the book in larger chunks thereafter. Second observation that I want to make is from verse 1. Notice in verse 1 it says, the vision of Isaiah the son of Amos concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So these are the two topics, concerning Judah, topic 1, and Jerusalem, topic 2. Now that phrase, Judah and Jerusalem, is not only an indication of who the original audience was, it's actually an outline of chapter one, indicating that there will be two separate discourses or two individual speeches made by God. God is gonna make one speech in verses two through 20, and that speech is directed towards Judah as a whole. And the second speech is made specifically regarding the capital city, of Jerusalem. So as we look at the literary structure of chapter 1, Isaiah addresses the whole nation of Judah in, in verses 2 through 20, and then specifically addresses the city of Jerusalem in verses 21 through 31. The third observation is that the first discourse has a clear beginning and a clear end. Notice the phrase that begins the first discourse or the first speech of God in verse 2. It says, listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. This is the key phrase, the Lord speaks. Now, skip down to verse 20, and the last phrase in verse 20 says, truly, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And so, these two phrases mark off the beginning and the end of the first discourse, or the first speech which God makes in this Supreme Court case. By the way, that's why in most of the modern translations, the publishers put a section break between verse 20 and verse 21 because they're noting that there is a transition between the first and second discourse, between the section addressed to Judah in verses 2 through 20 and the section addressed specifically to Jerusalem in verses 21 through the end of the chapter. A fourth observation is that Isaiah's first discourse, the one concerning Judah in verses 2 through 20, is further organized around three subsections. And each of those three subsections are marked by an imperative exhortation. There are three imperatives. The first is listen. That's in verse 2. The, sec the second is hear in verse 10. And then come in verse 18. So listen, O heavens, that's the first subsection, verses 2 through 9. Then hear the word of the Lord, verses 10 through 17, and then come now and let us reason together in verses 18 through 20. 
These three exhortations are very, very applicable for us. Listen, hear, and come. First, you have to listen to the word of the Lord. You have to actually open the book and read. You have to darken the doors of the church and hear. The sound has to pass over your eardrums and the words have to pass through your sight. You need to listen. Second, you need to not just let the sound waves pass over your ears. You need to really hear. You need to bring these truths inside and really internalize them. Listen and then hear, but then the third step is vital. Now you need to make a choice. Come, come now and reason together with the Lord. Bring your intellect into communion with his and into submission to his. Hear, listen, hear, and come. The three subsections of the first discourse. Fifth and final observation just in general about chapter one is that the second discourse, the one concerning Jerusalem, also has some subsections. The first subsection begins in verse 21 and ends in verse 26 with the phrase, the faithful city. Notice that verse 21 begins with the phrase, how the faithful city has become a harlot. And then at the end of verse 26, he says, after that you will be called the city of righteousness, a faithful city. So the first subsection of the second speech begins and ends with this key phrase, the faithful city. Alec Motier in his commentary shows that this first subsection has what's called a chiastic structure, where the first and the last phrase is parallel, the second and the next to last phrase is also parallel. The third and the third to last are parallel, and then the central two phrases are parallel. And so it presents what is almost like an arrow, and that arrow points towards the central thought, which is in the middle of this section. So notice that verse 21 talks about the collapse of the morals of the faithful city of Jerusalem. Then the last phrase in verse 26 talks about the restoration of the morals of the faithful city. Then the second phrase in verse 21 talks about the past and present being contrasted, that justice has been replaced by murder. But then the second to the last phrase in verse 26 also contrasts the past and the future. And it contrasts the past injustices being replaced by true justice and true judges. Then the third phrase has a metaphor the values of Jerusalem have been turned to dross in verse 22. But in verse 25, it says that that dross will be purged. This metaphor is returned to. And then right there in the middle, you have verses 23 and 24, which contrast the corrupt rulers of Jerusalem with the divine sovereign who is the Lord, the king of all kings. So again, in this structure, which is called a chiasm, the central thought in the middle is the one that is being emphasized. So the central thought of the second discourse is that the earthly authorities, discussed in verse 23, are subject to the higher authority of God in verse 24. In fact, that's the main idea. When God is addressing Jerusalem, he wants to help them realize that their earthly rulers have not been in submission to their ruler, to the king of all kings and the Lord of 
all lords. And this, therefore, becomes yet another passage that teaches the same thing that I discussed in some messages and in the book that we turned that into about the limits of authority that God has placed on the family and on the government and on the church. All authority belongs to Christ, right? The Great Commission. All authority in heaven and earth belongs to me. So God has all authority. He's the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords, but he delegates authority. He delegates authority to parents. He delegates authority to governments. He delegates authority to church leaders. But all human authority is limited authority. All authority is delegated by God and is therefore limited And all human authorities are subject to the higher law and the higher and absolute authority of God. There is no one unaccountable. There is no one who has absolute power except for the most high. And so the central thought of that first section of the second discourse is that human authorities must submit to God. There's another subsection in that second discourse, and it's in verses 27 through 23, which contrasts the redemption of the repentant in verse 27 with the judgment of the unrepentant in verse 31. And while this section has a near-term application in the history of Israel, it also clearly has an eschatological intent because it looks forward to the future restoration of Israel and the day of judgment on the unrepentant. And that contrast in that second section of the second discourse is one which we see throughout the scriptures. The unrepentant will be judged. There is coming a day when the king will hold court and the judge in the supreme court of the universe will render final judgment on all. And those who refuse to repent will be condemned. But the repentant will be redeemed. The question as we observe this court proceeding is to think on which side of that contrast are you? Are you the unrepentant who will be condemned or are you the repentant who are redeemed? So those are five kind of introductory observations of chapter one. So with those in mind, let's step now into the courtroom, sit in the kind of observation gallery and observe the proceedings of the court. We're gonna observe as Israel's crimes are indicted in verses two through nine, as Israel's excuses are invalidated in verses 10 through 15, and as Israel's repentance is invited in verses 16 through 31. So let's look at Israel's crimes being indicted by the Lord, the judge. Verses two through nine. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner and a donkey its master's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Alas, sinful nation. People weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from him. Where will you be stricken again 
as you continue in your rebellion. The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there's nothing sound in it, only bruises, welts, and raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged, nor softened with oil. Your land is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your fields, strangers are devouring them in your presence. It is desolation as overthrown by strangers. The daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a watchman's hut in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. Unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom. We would be like Gomorrah. Israel's crimes are indicted. The indictment against Israel is that they are guilty of irrational rebellion. Irrational rebellion. Sons I've reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner and a donkey its master's manger, but Israel does not know my people do not understand. This is irrational rebellion. When the Lord says that Israel has revolted against me, he uses a Hebrew term which Martin says was, quote, often used in political treaties to describe a vassal state's disobedience to the covenant with their ruler. Alec Motier defines this term as, quote, a willful flouting of authority. They have revolted against me. This is a coup, an evil, wicked coup. They had ignored, rejected, and violated God's commandments. They disregarded and dishonored God the way a rebellious teenager disregards and dishonors his parents. They had turned their backs on God, abandoned him. They'd even despised him. And they turned away from him even though it was he who protected them from their enemies. Even though it was he who caused that dry, rocky soil in Israel to flow with milk and honey. Verse 3 says, An ox knows its owner and a donkey its master's manger, but Israel does not know my people do not understand. A manger is a feeding trough. Who puts the feed in the feeding trough? Even a donkey knows that. Even an ox knows that. They know where they get their daily bread. But God says, My people (coughs) do not know. They don't understand point being made here is that rebellion against God is not only wicked, it is foolish. You will draw a breath with the air that God made into the lungs that God gave you and then expel that breath in blasphemy to the Lord in wickedness. You will take the daily bread that God gives you and use that energy to commit wicked deeds. The Lord is saying, look, even A donkey knows who puts the food in the trough. Gary Smith comments on the timeless principle found here. He he says, quote, Unfortunately, there are still some religious people who make unwise, sinful decisions that make the average donkey look like a genius. This analogy about the failures of God's chosen people should cause church people today to ask the question, have we ever acted like the rebellious people Isaiah is talking about? And the answer, of course, for each of us is yes. We, like they, forget who puts the feed in the manger. 
Verse four, alas, sinful nation. People weighed down with iniquity. So often, human beings describe themselves as being weighed down. Why are you weighed down? Most people say, well, I'm weighed down by the sin of others. I'm weighed down by the heavy burdens of this world. Can I tell you something? The heaviest weight that any human being carries is the weight of their own iniquity. Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity. I want you to notice a shift that occurs. At the end of verse 3, God refers to Israel as my people. He says, Israel does not know. My people do not understand. But notice the shift in verse 4. Alas, sinful nation. Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum, as I, who, I, as I mentioned, is an ethnically Jewish Christian scholar, points out, quote, the Hebrew word for nation used in verse 4 is goy, a term normally used for Gentiles. But this is one of the places where it is used of Israel. The Israelites were acting like the nations that do not know God. So verse 3, it's my people, and now in verse 4, it's sinful goyim, sinful Gentiles. Notice also in verse 4 that the term for offspring occurs. And that term is used throughout the Old Testament to describe the seed of Abraham. But here they're called the offspring of evildoers. Not the seed of Abraham, but the seed of evildoers. And then at the end of verse 4, there's a term which is translated turned away, but that's a play on words in the Hebrew It's a word which is used throughout the Old Testament for the wickedness of the unbelieving pagan Gentiles, the kind who worship Baal. So verse four is a series of sharp rebukes which are comparing Judah to the wicked pagan nations around them. The people of God have become a sinful nation like the Goyim, the pagan Gentiles. They're the seed of evildoers instead of living like the seed of Abraham. They've turned away from God just like the turner awayers, the pagans who worship Baal. This is a shocking indictment. An indictment of their irrational rebellion. Next, we see God's indignant reprimand. Indignant reprimand, verses five and six. Where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there's nothing sound in it, only bruises, welts, and raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged, nor softened with oil. Yesterday, my daughter, who uh, plays uh, for the Cougars basketball team, uh, she's like, hey, Dad, I, I, got, I think I've got a pretty bad blister on my toe, and <laughs> she had me look at it. It was a really, really, really bad blister. And... Um, and somewhat infected, and um, you know, she's in first service. I didn't tell this story first service, so don't tell her. <laughs> you know, so you know, I, I, I had to lance it and then press it out. God is saying, you know what? There's, from head to toe, there are welts and raw wounds that are not pressed out or bandaged or softened with oil. This is an indignant reprimand. 
And the description of the consequences of sin in verses five through six are a poignant reminder of the biblical doctrine called the doctrine of total depravity. Notice that it's head and heart and it's sole of foot to crown of head. Nothing sound in any of that. Not, nothing sound in head, nothing sound in heart, nothing sound in body. Sin has infected and affected every aspect of our being, from heart to head, from soul to crown of head. Every aspect of the human being has been corrupted by evil. And there is a huge practical, moral, ethical lesson here. We need to realize that evil desires and evil deeds are evil, regardless of whether they originate in the body in the mind, in the emotions, or in the soul. A bodily desire for evil is still evil. An intellectual desire for evil is still evil. An emotional desire for evil is still evil. And a spiritual desire for evil is still evil. You see, in modern times, we become very sophisticated in our excuses. You know, the reason that I want evil things or I do evil things is not really me, it's just my body. It's not really me, it's just my mind. It's not really me, it's just my emotions. It's not really me, it's just my thinking. It's not really me, it's just, you know what, all of those things are you. Modern people assume that if evil, for example, if evil is shown to have a physical cause, it somehow renders evil less evil. On what basis? Have we concluded that if evil has a cause in the body, it renders it less evil? It does not. Let's suppose a study comes out. And let's say that at some point, they're able to isolate a gene. And this gene predisposes someone to murder and assault a child. It's a physical cause of child murder. Physical disposition towards child murder and child molestation. Would the fact of a physical cause render the act less morally reprehensible? And the answer is no. Evil is evil. Whether it originates in your body, in your mind, or in your soul. We need to recover and teach the doctrine of total depravity. It's taught here in Isaiah 1. It's taught in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, Jeremiah 17, verse 9, Romans 3, verses 10 through 20, and many other passages. And one of the things that Romans 3 says, it says their feet are swift to shed blood. You see, the reason we need a Savior is because every aspect of our being is infected and dominated by sin. Suppose our bodies were perfect and it was only our immaterial soul that was corrupted. Perhaps then, through bodily discipline, we could overcome the corruptions of the soul. Or suppose that the soul was morally perfect and it's just the body that's corrupted. Then maybe through piety and and religious exercise, we could overcome the passions and corruptions of the body. But the reality is that no one can overcome corruption because it is everywhere. It's in your body, it's in your mind, it's in your soul, it's in your emotions, it's in your intellect, it is in your will. If your 
intellect was left uncorrupted, then maybe through academics we could achieve utopia on earth and overcome iniquity. It's all impossible because the fall of man corrupted both our material being and our immaterial being. By the way, this is why it's so striking and so important what I'm about to point out. In Isaiah 1, verses five through six, Isaiah uses a series of terms describing this total corruption, this infecting all of us depravity. And then in Isaiah chapter 53, he uses a number of those same terms and concepts in reference to what Christ did for us at the cross. Turn over to Isaiah chapter 53, verses four through six. Isaiah chapter 53, verses four through six says this. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. When you look at the language used in chapter 1, and you look at the language used in Isaiah 53, 4 through 6, it becomes very clear that Isaiah 53, 4 through 6 is describing the solution for the condition described in chapter one, verses five through six. Where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? The whole head is sick, the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there's nothing sound in it, only bruises, welts, and raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged, nor softeneth oil. What is the solution? And it is the cross. It is the Messiah bearing the iniquities and bringing healing and wholeness to all of man, to the whole being of man, taking it all on himself and being wounded for our transgression, and it is in his stripes that we are healed. The only solution for the depravity of man, the only solution for the depravity which has corrupted both our bodies and our souls is the substitutionary atonement provided by Jesus Christ. And so the question becomes, what condition are you in? Are you in the condition described in Isaiah 1, 5 through 6, where you are continuing in your rebellion, and everything is welts and bruises and the heavy burden of sin? Or have you come to the cross of Christ and had that burden pulled off you? and had those wounds pressed out and bandaged and had them applied with the balm of 
the grace of God. One of the most remarkable statements in all of scripture is that God's grace is greater than our sin. Our iniquity is great. The corruption is total. The depravity is total. There's no part of us that has escaped the corruption of sin. And yet, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. While we were dead in sin, the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. And then the sinless one, the righteous one, died for us and rose from the dead to redeem us so that those who are weighed down by iniquity could be set free. I want to invite